Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is The Other Thing I Do. Not too long ago, somebody told me, well, everyone told me, that there'd be one thing you couldn't see coming this week. And it turns out, it has nothing to do with TIFF. It's some audio interference in the episode I expected to release today, and I haven't been able to fix it in time. I'll get there, but we'll save it for the theatrical release. Instead, I'm reaching back to the earliest days of the podcast, in July 2015, when I sat down with my friend Chandler Levac to talk about the 1998 teen comedy, Can't Hardly Wait. Why this episode? Because Chandler's at TIFF this year with her first feature, a terrifically complicated coming-of-age picture, I Like Movies, that had its world premiere on Friday and has already become one of the festival's buzziest titles. It's screening again at 6.30pm tomorrow, Wednesday, September 14th at the TIFF Bell Lightbox 3, and on Friday, September 16th at 9.45pm at the TIFF Bell Lightbox 2. It's really great. And ever since I saw it, I've been thinking about this conversation and how prescient it was about so many things. Honestly, it's also just nice to hear Dexter jingling around in the background again. So here we go. From the vault, this is someone else's movie. Can't Hardly Wait is one of those movies that I wasn't expecting to be a touchstone, but of course it is. I'm just, I'm just in the wrong bracket. I saw it when I was already, I guess, 30. Mm-hmm. And so you can look, I can look back on it and go, oh, that was a fun comedy that, that plays its pieces really well and arranges everything nicely, but I don't share the the immediacy of it and you would have been much younger yeah so. i was 12 when i think i watched it and i think the reason i picked it is because it just like coincided with this like time in my life i think i was you know grade seven i had this group of friends and we did everything together and we had nicknames for each other and we all had the same obsessive crush on this one boy and we wrote we had this giant notebook that we would write like this kind of continuing short story that was like our weird prepubescent like fantasies about like what it would be like to date this boy that we didn't even really know. And then we, one time we called him on the phone and we made him, like, all talk to us. <laughs> so that's a social ritual. Yeah. And it was, like, also, you know, like, the kind of in the advent of the internet, too. So it was a lot of, like, weird group, like, going on, like, Yahoo message boards and talking to strangers and pretending to be somebody else. Thank this movie, guys. we saw it in theaters. And then for, like, a year, we'd watch it every weekend. As a group, like it was like the de facto sleepover, and we'd all have sleepovers at each other's houses. Right. So, I probably watched this movie like I don't know how many weeks or in a year, but over fifty times. <laughs> and then I bought the soundtrack, and I bought the novelization. Like I wanted it in every form of like content that there was. Right. And I think because for me it was like this template. Like I was you know twelve years old, so this is what your high school experience is going to be like. And then my high school experience was absolutely nothing like that. Yeah. I mean, it does, It occurred to me, watching it just a few days ago, Can't Hardly Wait is like the last analog kids movie. There's there's a, like, the same way Ronin is sort of the last analog action movie, which which we talked about on the show earlier with, with Mark Slutsky. Um, it's a, it's not a relic. It feels more like a, like a time capsule, like a little sliver. Yeah. Because it's, because of the one night concept. And it's kind of like a yearbook. Like, you sort of... You see all these flashes of these, like, actors from the 90s, like, Clea Duvall and, like, uh, Ethan Embry. And it's like... It's like you see their headshot and then they're gone. And you're like, oh, yeah, what happened to that guy? Yeah. And there's also a new generation in it. Like, the people that I hadn't um, expected to find. Because the... 
the casting director on this one deserves a medal. Um, <laughs> like this, they say you know there's a whole documentary devoted to the idea that casting agents are the only above the yeah the, the casting front, by front line, yeah the frontline title the, the only frontline credit that doesn't get its own Oscar nomination. Mm-hmm. It, it wouldn't be a movie like you know the Born Identity where they get Brian Cox and Chris Cooper. It would be something like this where. Like every, virtually every speaking role is someone who's going to be back. They're all totally, yeah. There's a Jerry O'Connell, yeah. like uncredited cameo. I, I wrote down a little list of all the people that I didn't know were in it this time, and it's yeah. uh, who did I find? Um, uh, Amber Benson, Jason Siegel, Sarah Rue, Selma Blair. I knew I knew who she was, but I didn't know she was in this. Yeah, um, she has like two lines of dialogue. Yeah, she's like girl number one of something. Yeah. Uh, Sean Patrick Thomas is in it. Uh, did I mention Jennifer Lee Cox? I think she turned up on Voyager for a couple of seasons. Oh. It's just one of those. There's a there is a real oh, and whoever it was uh, that cast Six Feet Under was clearly watching. Yeah, this, right. Lauren, oh yeah, because Eric Balfour's in Eric it. Eric Balfour, Freddie Rodriguez, uh, and and Lauren Ambrose. Oh, yeah. I knew about Ambrose, but not the other two. Yeah. Well, I think it was this weird dearth of like there were like no there was kind of like a drought of like teen comedies for a couple years mm-hmm. you know well horror like, movies had sort of taken over yeah so it was like Days and Confused happened and that was like more underground nobody really knew and kind of a similar like sprawling American graffiti inspired like generational comedy with like a different friend groups kind of meandering together and then and then it's like for me like kind of like my puberty <laughs> coincided <laughs> with like She's All That and 10 Things I Hate About You and Can't Hardly Wait and Oh, like a bunch of even crappier ones that are like straight to DVD now, like Head Over Heels and oh, yeah. uh, what's that movie? Um, Never Been Kissed. Right. And it was like I just consumed all of them, you know, because I didn't know better. Yeah, well, that, but that's what they're for. Like, yeah. That's what that that entire production line is aimed at people who haven't really, you know, figured out how to discern. Yeah. So yeah, in some ways, it's like you just kind of you're marketed the stuff and then. You consume it and you don't know any better and then later on you're like oh these actually like formed my sensibility and personality like way more than i thought they would yeah and in some ways like also dawson's creek was like a huge thing for me and that show started when i was in grade six and it ended by the time i was graduating high school and so it's like the all of these things like set kind of a template in my expectations for like what i thought high school was going to be like and then it, in ways it made me feel like nostalgic for things that I never got to experience. Right. Because you're, you're growing up thinking that you're going to be like sailing on a boat called True Love, like, <laughs> which happens in Dawson's Creek. Um, or like you're going to lose your virginity on a ski trip. But then instead you're like 15 and working at Blockbuster and like, no, you have no, nobody likes you and you're like, you know, what's going on? <laughs> Where's my like climactic prom date, you yeah. know? And it's not even the first generation to have that sort of disappointment, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, certain, I, I still don't fully know, because I was even more like a movie omnivore when I was a teenager. Yeah. Um, but it was all, like, for guys, it was action movies, because the 80s was the, the, right. the peak, the pinnacle of the disposable action movie totally. experience. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just always ready to tear a guy's throat out with my two fingers, like, <laughs> uh, like Swayze does in that one time. But uh, Yeah, I guess for my... Generation was a girl, like, yeah, these were all romantic comedies in some ways. Oh, yeah. Well, so, I mean, that's how they were pitched, right? Because yeah. that was how you packaged them. There always had to be a, a, a primary heterosexual chase. Yeah. It's like a teen girl with three names, like an actress <laughs> with three names. And then it was like, you know, which one of these actresses is, like, going to be in the situation where... And the, the thing is, the women were always pretty, like, in this movie, especially Jennifer Love Hewitt, like, her 
her character, like, her plans are undecided, and she has, like, absolutely no personality. She just has, like, huge hair yeah. and, like, boobs. And, and a halter top. She's the, yeah. she's the one actor who came in a halter... The she's one like, character who came in a halter top She's day. a walking halter top. Yeah. And every guy in the movie just goes, you're so hot. You're so hot. I really want to have sex with you. And she's like, oh, no. <laughs> I'm I'm waiting for someone, something big. And you're like, but what do you, what do you want to do? Like, how could you graduate high school and not have like any idea what is going to happen? Yeah. It's weird because they, well, there's that one scene uh, in the final third where the obvious misunderstanding is required (laughs) where she has the speech about her own lack of focus. Right. But it doesn't land. Like it didn't land for me because at that point, I think like the whole point of her character is world weariness, mm-hmm. having been through the the, the pre astronaut Mike Dexter. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite. Just totally blew it up. <laughs> I was like so obsessed with that when that happened at Thirty Rocks. I was like, does she know that that's the character in <laughs> Can't Hardly Wait? She must. She must. <laughs> uh, she wrote Mean Girls. How could she not yeah. be aware of Can't Hardly Wait? Oh yeah. Um, but it's one of those things where it's like once again Tina Fey just proves to be the smartest person in the, not in the room but in the building. <laughs> Picks exactly the right name, and um, and Hewitt's character will have been with this guy presumably for like three and a half years, I guess, right? Because she showed up at, as a freshman. I assume they're sexually active. You would think um, <laughs> they they they'd read a good five years older than they need to be. So <laughs> yeah, what, what's what? Definitely in their twenties. Yeah, <laughs> everyone and... in this movie is actually so old looking. <laughs> Yeah, Ethan Embry, I looked this up. He was only 20 when he shot it, but he looks 30. Like, his <laughs> he looks hairline's like already going. And, yeah. Uh, but, but with Hewitt's character, it just feels like at the last minute, somebody, probably Deborah Kaplan, because uh, Kaplan and Elfont are working as a team and they're usually really good about this stuff as writers. Yeah. They just figured out there was something missing about who she is and what she wants, and they still don't quite give her three dimensions it's like they decided that the lauren ambrose character was like fleshed out enough like they, they already had one kind of like compelling like real life person in the movie that was a woman so they didn't have to bother about like the romantic lead yeah or maybe just casting her as the object means that she has to be an object although now we've seen films that manage to pull that off as yeah give her an actual personality yeah um i wonder like the thing that struck me watching it again this time is that um, you've you've referred to it as Altman-esque, yeah. which which is a really good call. I think uh, the, just the sort of weaving constant activity, and there's all these sub stories going on. But it felt to me like right now there are two mumblecore movies fighting for dominance, and then you could have in one the mo- film. Yeah, you could have oh, one movie about Embry stalking uh, Hewitt, and you can have another movie that's just Ambrose and Green, Lauren Ambrose and Seth Green locked in that bathroom. It's true, actually. Like if the Duplass brothers were like remaking yeah. Can't Hardly Wait, it like. This could be a Netflix um, Ethan Embry series, right? would be like uh, played by Jesse Eisenberg, and <laughs> there'd be like an, an unnerviness about this. Yeah. Um, or it'd be like that movie. Oh, what's that movie about? It's like a man. It's a boy's name. It's like an overweight boy that like has. Oh, Terry. Yeah. 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 Which is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, the female character in that movie is really like pretty compelling and interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's- it's it feels weird. I mean, I I hate to judge any movie by the by modern standard because everything like and just in the what seventeen years since this came out, things have really changed. Well, yeah, it once struck me because I hadn't seen it in a couple years, even though I own the DVD, yeah, and it's in your head all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's just like embedded in my DNA. <laughs> um, there's a lot of gay jokes. Like, there's a lot of jokes that just the punchline is like fag or yeah. like, which is in the movie. I'm not a couple yeah. of times. Yeah, yeah, and in the, like, and 
And it's weird because I think even when I was watching it then, I knew that that those jokes weren't actually funny. Or, like, the sex comedy jokes, like, the foreign exchange student, just, like, I want to touch your penis. Like, I remember my friends laughing really hard at that stuff, but it was almost like we didn't actually know it was funny. It's like you're learning language in that way. Like, I remember we kept quoting that line about, well, she's not prettier than Gwyneth, but we didn't really know what that meant or who Gwyneth Paltrow really was at the time. We just, like, it was, like, almost like semiotics. Like, you're learning the language of how bitchy girls talk to each other at a party so that you hope one day you can beat those bitchy girls. It's weird, right? I mean, so many high school movies are sort of uh, designed for teenagers to imprint on. Mm -hmm. uh, Or at least that this is what cool is in that window. Imprinting in in like the twilight sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very much so. (laughs) You will do this. Yeah. Because we tell you to. Yeah, it's true. And it's, I think, especially, I don't know, and now I watch it and I remember like having like I, I was so in love with like the Ethan Embry character in that in that movie, even though like I did not resemble Jennifer Love Hewitt in any possible way. Right. Um, and I think it's because I actually wanted to be Ethan Embry. You know, like, I love that he goes to, he's going to Dartmouth to do a workshop with Kurt Vonnegut, (laughs) which is, like, so unfathomable because he just seems like this weird, like, bug-eyed, like, loon. Yeah. Uh, There are qualities. I mean, he's he's sort of put forward as the, 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 oh, I mean... Ultimately, I was going to say the the Lloyd Dobler, but yeah, I was going to say that too. But it's actually the character that Cusack plays in the Sure Thing that I'm thinking of. Oh, who yeah, is that's even a more great of an movie. idealist and and sort of a cockeyed literature hero in that he's the questing character. Mm. He's sort of he's searching for like personal truth and mm-hmm. like asking those deep questions, and right. he's like the thinker, and he's like you know he's all about like fate, which is such a huge theme of teen movies like that things are faded or written in the stars because like your whole life hasn't been set out yet so and yet the high school movie exists to codify the idea that you are always going to be who you are which i I yeah so fascinating totally and i agree actually and i always think about in what ways like the things that you love when you're 15 the things you imprint on like kind of set like your destiny in motion like if if those are the if, if it's pop culture that makes you who you are oh yeah absolutely as, I mean yeah. I believe that um, as opposed to um, like just your character as yeah. a pre human like if I didn't you know if the strokes hadn't come out when I was 15 would I have wanted to like move to New York and like interned at Spin and like been a music critic or like did I need that I needed that record to like set my like destiny in motion yeah I've always believed that the stuff we love um, finds us as much as we find it. I, I, yeah. Just yesterday on Twitter, I, I found an old, uh, uh, the an original copy of, of the Infocom game, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and just tweeted the, the image, like, you want to feel old? Look at this. <laughs> uh, and it's a five and a quarter disc, and it just, it's, it just had liver spots on it, basically. Mm-hmm. But Douglas Adams is the kind of token that I, like, touchstone that I think of it that way. It's that those books are out there forever, and people will keep discovering them. Yeah. And it will sort of kink you into the right direction of where you already meant to go. If you find a talisman, it's there for you to find. Absolutely. And high school movies are really weird that way because they also say, well, you know, jocks are always going to be jocks, brains are always going to be brains, mm. the, the five the, the, the five uh, Hughes versions of people from The Breakfast Club are always going to exist. Uh, but what you can do is move within them. Yeah, or the, all those archetypes in The Breakfast Club, like, everyone has that in them. What's interesting about this movie is it's very slated towards, like, the nerds will win and take over. Like, 
all the best people in the movie are actually like the underdogs mm-hmm. and like the smartest people and the people that like you know that they're going to escape high school and they're going to be the people that they want to be and one of the most devastating things i think about high school is like that moment where you're like you're ready to move on but you're just not able to be the person you you want to be yet and you have to like stick it out and shine it on a little longer yeah and maybe you haven't found your people or maybe people don't understand like the person you want to become and you're just like faking it so hard and you know you have like two or three years left and then you're going to go to university and you're like you'll absolutely become that thing that you want to be but it's like for now you're just wearing like weird ill-fitting pants from american eagle and like yeah and i remember like in high school like i never drank i never i never kissed anyone i was like a super nerd um and i remember like my high school graduation i i was like where's the party you guys like can't hardly wait like we gotta do this and everyone's like no i don't think that there's gonna be a party i'm like what are you talking about like i've been waiting like four years to like have my like can hardly wait experience yeah, promises where I, like, were made yeah this movie showed me what my high school graduation was gonna be like and i drank like one warm most Molson canadian <sighs> in like my friend's garage and went home at like 11 p.m on graduation night and it was like so disappointing to me yeah i had much the same experience i mean i think the problem with high school uh, a friend of mine uh who is an actual academic um has has made an excellent case for the idea that the people who peak in high school the people well i've blown it i've blown her theory her argument is that the people who are popular and cool and set in high school they get stuck and you actually see it in can hardly wait it's the first yeah. sort of validation with the trip character which i've actually never seen in another movie i don't think yeah which is kind of what's like cool about this movie is there are like there are very it's like very slightly subversive where they're like going you should actually feel really sorry for this mike dexter character because this is as good as it's going to get for him and even he knows that. And the fact that he kind of redeems himself at the end, but then also doesn't. Yeah. It was, like, actually really interesting screenwriting, I guess. Yeah. Well, it's unsatisfying, which mm-hmm. is what drama is, mm-hmm. like, at its best. And you don't expect to find moments of clarity like that in this movie, especially after the, de- the good deed from earlier. But, yeah, the good deed is really just small. It's easy for him to do. And it's the kind of thing that no one else will ever know about. Yeah. Uh, and he, I, you know... You, you picture it as the last decent act before you sink back into a life of going for your realtor's license. And, <laughs> like, he doesn't get the it-gets-better moment that every other character gets. Even right. in the text, it's just, you know, like, the movie really sort of doesn't care about him anymore. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure that's coming from, like, the personal worldview of the screenwriters that probably got fucked over by a Mike Dexter. I would think, yeah. Yeah. But also, it's like, I think um, Nick Cornby did this American Life episode, which I think about all the time where he talks about going back to his um, high school reunion, and there was this guy that he was who pushed him into a pool and humiliated him, and this was, like, a memory that he always had his whole life, and, like, basically it spurred him on to, like, become a writer and become the person he wanted to be. And then he went back to his reunion, and he confronted this guy, and this guy was like, no, you pushed me into the pool. Like, that never happened. Okay. So there's this kind of idea, like, that, you know, I'm a nerd, and, like, the nerds are going to win, and, like everyone was against me in high school but like look at me now i'm hotter and sexier than ever and then you're like no actually i was a dick to lots of people and made other people feel like they weren't good enough and like i think you it's hard it's hard to have that kind of realization because mm-hmm. i think it, maybe everyone feels like that in in terms of there's always someone that yeah well and that's the i think that's why the movie's about 
the the nerds or the under the underclass is the wrong term, but the yeah. the the underdogs are always going to do well because even if you're the guy pushing people around, you still see yourself as a you know most likely as as the hero of your own story. Mm-hmm. So you need to be understood, and you identify with characters who aren't. I think the real like the genius of of what Kaplan and Elfont do in this, and also in Josie and the Pussycats, which is a hugely yeah, underrated movie. Totally, that movie is actually like really incredibly smart and first of like the way that the branding. Oh yeah, yeah. Everything about it, I think it basically predicts what happened the decade that followed in terms of uh, cross promotional franchising corporations totally. eating movies. But of course, it does it with a sense of humor and irony that is now sorely lacking from the Transformers franchise, which is, I think, the best example of what Josie and the Pussycats tried to stop. Yeah. But they see the patterns uh, of human behavior at work there, mm-hmm. in both in, in Can't Hardly Wait and in Josie, and they side with characters who are sort of already wrong by being so... Like, Preston's not right about fate. He no. makes it happen. Yeah. By chasing her and by having a pure heart and understanding her. <laughs> All of those things are true, but it's not that they're destined just because they had the same Pop-Tart. And other characters no. tell him this. Which and is... that's a very deluded thing. Yeah. I mean, now it's about a stalker who get, who happens to get lucky. Yeah, uh, because the girl in question is, like, vulnerable and damaged enough to be like, I'll go with this. Yeah. I can't, you know, I have absolutely no idea of my identity in any way. I'm only defined by boys that like me and... The relationships that I can be in. So I'm going to take this guy next. And it's a really weird place to end. Although I think they sort of gave themselves an out by, you know, the the tag is that they write, she wrote him a letter every day. So his act of devotion is repaid by something else where presumably she gets to express all the depth and feeling that we don't see. (laughs) I know. I I was thinking like, what's, what's in those letters? Yeah. Like... I want them Can't to be imagine. You know, spelled well. That's, that's all. <laughs> yeah, I don't want them to be on like sentence stationery yeah. or something. Today I saw Dawson's Creek and it made me feel sad because you weren't here to talk to about it. Oh, that's you know, nice. It would be like email or something now. Oh, I thought you were telling me that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that it was such a weird time, like the late 90s in terms of pop culture, because it was kind of like such an ugly time, like the fashion was really horrible oh, yeah. and the music was really bad and like Fred Durst was like a cultural icon. Yeah. This may be the only movie that uses Smash Mouth unironically and well. Just <laughs> yeah, it, it actually still has defines... a, a perfect use of Smash yeah. Mouth. <laughs> and again, I, I, I go back to Kaplan and Elfont being just a little bit smarter than the their studio uh, and and just making that work. like Or... or I, you know, it's one of those things where I don't know if they picked the song because they thought it was appropriate or if it was imposed on them as part of a licensing package right. of songs, yeah. but it worked. Totally. Like they found a way to make that work. Uh, but I'm sorry. You- oh, no. Well, I mean, the movie's named after a Platesman's song, mm-hmm. which is like anything that does that already has like my money forever. <laughs> um, and actually, the soundtrack, I think, is actually like incredible. It's like, I think, one of the best soundtracks of all time. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. It has like Run DMC and Parliament Funkadelic and Guns N' Roses, which is like an excellent use of Paradise City um, in the movie. And uh, it's like, yeah, it's kind of like how there's this sort of weird constellation of different genres and social groups in the movie. The soundtrack is like equally omnivorous too. Yeah. It's kind of cool. And also like one thing that's cool about this movie too is like it's in some ways really egalitarian like even though there's all these different social groups like everyone's invited to this party you know and you can see these kind of different weaving worlds and and stories like intersecting with each other and i think that's what was so exciting in my fantasy of how this like ultimate graduation party was going to go it was going to be this night where like 
all, you know, you could just float. Right. And everyone would kind of be there with, like, open, accepting arms. Because in the fantasy of, like, your last day of high school, it's like high school is over. So you can finally just be yourself. Or you can take that chance where you can go after that person that you've always wanted. Yeah. Or be the person you always wanted to be. You can drop the, the factions once and for all because now we're in the real world. Except mm-hmm. the real world is just as bad, if not worse. Yeah. As these characters don't discover. Which no. is still... Like, that'll happen tomorrow. And, and yeah. they'll, they'll be disillusioned in their own I mean, time. that's like Reality Bites is almost like the sequel, right? Yeah. Where it's like, okay, this is where, like, you know, you have a house now. Of, like, Lauren Ambrose is, like, the Janine Garofalo character. And, like, Winona Ryder is also the Lauren Ambrose character. Yeah. Um, and Ethan Hawke is like, I don't know, kind of an amalgam of different people in the movie. But it's like, yeah. I think Julie Klausner said once that like, your 20s is the only part of your life that you don't realize is actually terrible. <laughs> like, everyone knows that high school is terrible. But your 20s are supposed to be amazing. And then you realize, no, they're even worse. <laughs> yeah. It's <Yeah, that's laughs> actually true. Um, yeah, I, there's no, it's because that's the period where now, anyway, um, now that I, who will be 47 next month, you know, I'm still not middle-aged, technically, because I refuse to accept it. Uh, <laughs> the 20s and 30s are sort of blurring into this weird space where you still get to find yourself. Like, you still... I've always known mm-hmm. what I wanted to do, and, and who I am hasn't really changed, uh, which is probably why I still feel 12 in my head most days. But the push towards pushing that back for people... Especially now that, you know, with the state of the knowledge economy being what it is, where nobody really knows what they're going to be doing in 10 years. You can, yeah. you know, you have vague goals or really concrete ones, but you can't be sure. Like, the tracks no longer exist to establish people on, to 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 develop a career as we used to know it. Definitely. Um, and Can't Hardly Wait does sort of acknowledge that these people are all moving forward in a really unpredictable way like their lives aren't going to go where they think they're going to go and usually that kind of disillusionment waits for you in your (laughs) mid-twenties as you were saying and now like these kids are they would be what 35 now and who knows what they're doing yeah I mean if this movie was made now I mean it's it's kind of weird for me because I'm I'm 28 and Mm -hmm. I like you know uh, through my 20s it it kind of went to the point where it's like oh jobs don't exist anymore you're never going to actually have like a full-time job it's going to pay you a salary and a benefits package and you'll be able to like buy a house one day like just forget about that and like all you have are kind of these ephemeral constraints of like your personality you have to market your personality and brand yourself so that people will want to like hire you for one-off freelance jobs but that's not gonna if you can if you can like uh create a construct of who you are that people want to cash in on or something yeah that's how you'll be able to survive but if you're not willing to do that then good luck to you yeah well it's the we want to be in the chandler levac business yeah i don't want to be in (laughs) this is a phrase i've never heard no directed with me involved if someone ever said that to me i would just like throw up (laughs) or sign sign, or be like here's yeah yeah but yeah yeah. it's strange it's um it's and i guess that's why i'm so struck by watching it now is that it's the world still exists like that is still i'm sure a reality of teenage life is that you have your people and Mm. the intersections of with other groups are just that's what happens at a party yeah but the world is so different now and even the way teenagers relate i mean high school i hope is a better place for people now that the internet exists and is so pervasive because Mm. you're never alone yeah even if you are physically 
isolated, there's still a whole world that you can access. I mean, God knows what I probably never would have left the basement. I would have just <laughs> watched everything I could have watched online. I would have spent hours on, you know, movie and Fandor just gobbling movies that weren't available to me. Yeah, well, it's it's kind of weird because, I mean, kids these days they have kids these days. <laughs> They have access to everything, and I can't imagine having access to everything. Yeah. And so, like, the kind of delineations between culture, like, don't exist anymore. Like, to them, like, I don't know, like, uh, Selena Gomez and Led Zeppelin are on the same part because they can download it instantly. Yeah, you can and, be as well-versed in obscure hip-hop artists of the 90s as you can be in, like, Cat Stevens records from yeah, the 70s. Yeah, and they are. They know so much more because it's like they don't have distinctions. <laughs> when, I think for me, like... I had to work backwards, so, like, The Strokes were my favorite band, so that's how I found out about, like, The Velvet Underground and television and, uh, uh, you know, like, you kind of, you have to go in reverse. And I think, you know, even with Can't Hardly Wait, like, you pick up on those influences. You go, oh, Kurt Vonnegut, okay, I'm going to track that down. Or Guns N' Roses, okay, what's that, you know? And in some ways, uh, it feels like you have to earn things more because you're, like, uh, doing deep digging, I guess, to find them. Hey, it's Norm, interrupting my own show to tell you about the latest Shiny Things newsletter, my weekly dispatch about physical media, culture, and maybe even the odd streaming thing. I just dropped that comprehensive run through Paramount's new 4K Star Trek discs I promised, and later this week I'll be tackling Greg Matola's Confess Fletch and Baz Luhrmann's Elvis, among other things. Subscribe for the price of a latte at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. I missed writing about movies. I'm glad I'm back at it. Come check it out. Like, it would have taken me forever to find out what happened to Charlie Cosmo. Yeah. Whereas I could just Wikipedia him and find out that he went to MIT. Yeah, he's a lawyer now? He's Yeah, and he's on the board of MIT and Yale, and he was appointed by Barack Obama to the board of trustees of a Barry Goldwater Foundation. Whoa. So, yeah. And also, he was the kid in Hook, too. He was the kid in Hook. Uh, and it's really weird to see his plot line, because I don't know that it works. Like, that's the one that feels the most dated of all of them because it is the Revenge of the Nerd angle. Yeah. And I mean, his, I think he's really good in the movie. Yeah. Like his performance and Seth Green's are like the most committed. Yeah. And well, Green, Jesus, yeah. There's a special box we I've got to have sex tonight. That is, yeah. That is a role that I think could have destroyed someone else's career. I know. Uh, and probably should have. <laughs> uh, but in terms of the the likability of Seth Green and the fact that he is willing to just not back down. Yeah. Even have a scene about it. Yeah. Uh, where he refuses to drop it. Uh, when when not only challenged, but like pushed. It's, that's a really brave performance in its own way. And he had, I, I think he'd already made Idle Hands or Idle Hands oh, was right around that same window. Right. Where he was just suddenly this strange comic energy in things. And was he in Buffy the Vampire Slayer too? Yeah. He yeah. And, he and, um, uh, Amber Benson, who played yeah. Tara, both show up in this film before Buffy, or before they made it onto Buffy. And um, yeah, Green. Well, I, it's. I mean, there's even a, a moment in the film, although he doesn't have, he's not involved in it. Where the, the problem, this is the problem I have with the Corsman thing too. It's not the lead; it's the sidekicks. Yeah, his yeah. Bu- his X Files buddies are so one-dimensional identikit nerds I know that they almost drag him down I agree and it's like they're not really put to good use at all yeah and 
I mean, and they're isolated by nature. The, the plot mm. has them hiding out on the roof for the entire movie. Yeah, and they keep cutting back to them. Like, aren't these guys hilarious? They're quoting, like, yeah. bu- like buzz lines from the X-Files, and you're yeah. like, not really. Like, I don't, I'm not interested in them. Yeah. I just kept thinking Kevin Smith, for all his faults as a, as a self-indulgent pop culture writer guy, mm. at that point, he would have come up with something for them to do. Because they kind of are the Jane Silent Bob. Yeah. Uh, functionaries. Yeah. In, in terms of be just, you know, stay there and be quippy so when this movie comes out in six months, everyone will say, oh, they knew about the X-Files. Although I remember, like, that line killing me when they're like, people might even be having sex tonight. <laughs> um, Which is as alien to them as, yeah, as the Greys. Right. Um, but then the his uh, Seth Green's friends, they, like, drop the N-word. They do, and they have they also have to be more oblivious in order to redeem him, which is yeah. really, like the nerds that Cosmo's surrounded with have to be more nerdy because he has to be able to have his secret coolness. Yeah. Which um, is probably the least cool thing I've ever seen. But <laughs> the fearlessness sells it, and it's the same thing that Green does. It's mm. the, the idea that these guys are just not going to drop that part. Yeah, I think the, they're so committed to it. And then there's, like, so many cool, committed characters, like Sarah Rue and, like, her, like, you are all sheep. <laughs> it's like... Really, she just really throws herself into it, and I think that's kind of what's cool. And then you can also kind of hang out with someone for a second. Like, I love the scene between, I think it's Jason Siegel and, like, that guy with, like, the hair. They're, like, yeah. stoners. Who I saw in a bunch of teen movies and just, like, dropped off the face of the earth. Yeah, I couldn't find him. I, I didn't dig that hard. In yeah. Movie, but I, it was one of those guys who was just like, oh, he was that guy. Yeah, he I always a, really was, like, liked him. He like, a look yeah. that made him memorable. Exactly. But... Nothing. And then they're like, I think he has, he wears like t-shirts and that. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I mean, kind of like an Alvin movie, you just sort of hang out with, with someone for a second and then it's like the film drops away and you're in this world and then it's like, okay, now we're going over here. And that kind of like the way that they've shot it with these kind of like whip pan, like languid sort of steady cam takes like all through all the levels of the house and stuff. Yeah. And I like that. And I think it is true in high school, like, because you're yourself and you're caught up in like your own little community and you're so in your head that it's like oh there's the guy that wears that shirt or like i love the guy that shoplifts everything yes the scene he's like such an american pie he was on the yeah american the pie future movies. shermanator yeah. yeah oh the shermanator <laughs> who again has one purpose in all of those movies yeah he's just got that kind of ferrety weaselly aspect yeah where it's like yep i believe this guy's doing these things he has the best face yeah <laughs> Yeah, I think in the 90s it was a lot easier just if you had a face, they'd be like, okay, you're going to be in like seven Jennifer Love Hewitt movies. Right. Yeah, or if you're Jennifer Love Hewitt. <laughs> That's how that works. I yeah. Mean, it just, she's, she's one of those actors who, it's weird, I like her in this film because she's trying to fill the character in. There's stuff going on. She's not coasting. No. Um, which is... you. Yeah, you get a sense that she has a soul to her. Yeah. Even though she has, like, literally nothing to work with. Yeah. I just get the sense that... And they hung it on her because she is... Like, she was... I, I suppose at that point she was... She'd already made I Know What You Did Last Summer, which was a verified box office hit, and is therefore yeah. the reason to cast her in stuff. And she was in Party of Five, I think. And she, yeah, of course she'd already done that. Um, now she's just in a show where she delivers hand jobs to people. I don't fully understand her <laughs> purpose as an actor. I mean, I guess it's pretty simple. Um, but it's a weird, like... It's a weird place to occupy because even though they're invoking Gwyneth, mm. 
Like, Gwyneth wasn't Gwyneth then. Gwyneth, I don't think Gwyneth was ever Gwyneth. I'm not sure when this is supposed to have happened, where she was this... I think it was, they're talking about, like, mid-90s Gwyneth. Yeah. She was dating Brad Pitt, and she'd been in, like, Great Expectations and Seven, and, you know... Yeah. She was, I mean, she had that little window where she was... Sliding doors. Yeah. The romantic movie star icon kind of thing. Yeah. But by that point, she was, like, she was making... She was in Shakespeare in Love. She won the Oscar oh, that yeah. year. And, yeah. and it's like, I get it, but I don't... Like, I never thought she was... It's weird. It's like the whole Jennifer Aniston, Gwyneth Paltrow thing that happened in the 90s. They're, they're actors who are more relatable than stunning. Mm. So it was kind of neat to see them become massive pop culture figures but then people trying to create the next one inevitably had no idea what they were looking for which is how you get the scene where jennifer love hewitt who has no like uh, there's no comparison yeah on any level yeah. between the two of them except maybe that they have big heads but all, <laughs> all actors have she big has heads. a huge head she does yeah uh, she's just kind of all like fluttering eyelids and then like she has all these monologues where she's kind of like you don't know me and like yeah. I'm not that girl and then you're like okay but like you are that girl like yeah. you've literally nothing else to do in the movie and like when you know in his letter he's talking about you know how there's something about her that other people don't know about but it's like he, he never pins it down yeah that's the thing I, she's never no one ever says or, or she's never led to the point by the script or the dialogue that she's given you know if you're not that girl who are you like, yeah what is it that you do or want or are and I think that's like a thing that uh, for me like consuming all these movies it was like oh well there's only you can be Jennifer Love Hewitt and that's what guys want they want this kind of like fantasy object to like hang their hopes and dreams on but you you know it's like a what if you even being that girl doesn't seem that awesome because you have like nowhere else to go yeah. even if the guy gets you it's like then you're stuck with this like weird dweeb um even yes. if he's in a curve want to get writing sure. workshop he will someday be shortlisted for the booker and he'll probably <laughs> kill two or three people who yeah. look at you funny but, <laughs> but those are his defining qualities <laughs> but it's like uh you know um i think there's some movies that they've managed to deconstruct that girl. Like, even in The Breakfast Club, Molly Ringwald's that girl, but there's a lot going under the surface there. Yeah, and, yeah. And the one incredibly well-developed female character in the film that I wanted to, like, yeah. not acknowledge is Lauren Ambrose, who oh, is yeah. just, you know, great. She's she, amazing. She she's is. so cool in this movie. And hostile in an interesting way. Yeah. Like, she's never off-putting unless you're supposed to understand that her defense mechanisms are getting in her own way. Mm. It's a really... I mean, she was. She would then be amazing on, on Six Feet Under. Yeah. But this is the movie where she really kind of stretches out and shows you that she's capable of almost anything. It's true. And you're kind of like, well, why can't Preston like her? Like, is it... Yeah. And they've already dealt with it. Well, yeah. it. It predates the movie, which is yeah. so great that there's, you know, because it's a great it, backstory. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's it's a device that I usually don't buy, because you know, oh, this is why we could never be together. But then while you watch the movie, you realize, oh, that's right. Yeah, they wouldn't. They like he's insane, and she <laughs> wouldn't have any patience for it. Yeah, it's true. I mean, maybe not insane. Uh, but she's also not defined by her relationship or her desire for a relationship. Yeah. She's completely content to not even go to the party. It's true. Like, in a lesser movie, she'd be kind of like the Mary Stuart Masterson character in Some Kind of Wonderful, where yeah. she'd be, like, hanging around with this, like, unrequited crush and, she, you know, helping him find her his dream girl, but then being like, I've been waiting for you my whole life. Yeah. And that was kind of also the Dawson's Creek dynamic, too. Sure. And it's like, I think... I mean, it doesn't create everybody's waiting for everybody else. <laughs> which is so fascinating. It's a show about waiting for Yeah, people. we have... And that's the... I mean, it's the, the theme song. Yeah. But, uh, but I well, never... Well, same with Can't Really Wait. It's like, there's something so romantic about that idea of like, what's my life going to be? And 
I don't want to wait for it to be over, and I can't hardly wait for the future and yeah. stuff. And, and that I kind only of have this limited dating pool to draw from. I know, and that's the really frustrating thing about high school. It's like knowing what you want, but just not being able to actually obtain it yet. Yeah, so you're just waiting, and everything's unfulfilled, and it feels so high stakes because like that's it. Yeah, I think that's why Ambrose's character is the most interesting to me is that she doesn't like she knows better. She's the world she's the worldly wise one instead of the world weary one. Yeah, she's clearly got values and goals that don't involve high school like she's totally. ready to move forward yeah but ends up like literally trapped in a small space <laughs> with somebody who the worst person yeah, who represents the absolute worst aspects of that thing about not knowing who you are yeah oh that's really smart why thank you and <laughs> i didn't do it though. you should be a professional film great <laughs> um but uh it's true and also like uh she's she, but it doesn't mean that she's not vulnerable or she doesn't get hurt or that she's, like, uh, impure, impure, impervious to, you know, that guy rejecting her later. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, like, she's smarter than it, but she's also still in it. And she's still, like, vulnerable and a human being. And I think that's what's so wonderful about her performance is, like, you see her in her eyes. Especially that last scene where they're, like, he gets... They're in the diner together and she kind of looks at them and she's like, oh, my God, I know this guy's, like, a fucking idiot, yeah. but here we go again, you know? And it's like, you know that those two aren't going to last and she's going to go to NYU and probably lead a pretty great life. But in that moment, it's like, well, this is what I have to work with. Yeah. I assume she grew up to make this movie. Like she's the the narrator character that we don't ever acknowledge. Because she's also smart enough that she'd pull back. Like she would make herself the center of her own movie. But watching this movie as like a 12 year old girl, I wasn't like smart enough to go like, be Lauren Ambrose. <laughs> I was like, oh, I want to be Jennifer Love Hewitt. Yeah. But then you're like, there's nothing there. Yeah. You know, that's kind of the manic pixie dream girl uh, thing, I guess. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Twilight earlier. Um, uh, yeah, I but, love the Twilight movies. Yeah. Well, but, um, Kate has this brilliant theory, I think, about what the Twilight films do, and it's have Bella be a, an absolute zero. Like she mm. doesn't exist except to be fought over, desired, or yeah. told how great she is. And if and as a as a young woman reading that book, you can be Bella because everyone and it's basically who Jennifer Love Hewitt is in this film. She's oh, yeah. Bella. She wants. She's there to be desired, and fought over, but she goes with wherever. Like she'll she goes with the current. She you know Bella will be tempted by Jacob. Why <laughs> yeah. we don't know. I mean I haven't read the books. I, I've I've seen all the movies. God help me. Um, <laughs> but uh, she's as passive in her own story. Um, as Bella is. Yeah. And what what's really weird is the one time she asserts any kind of... It's not even agency, it's just will. And says, you don't know me at all. And then not putting together who Preston is. Which is kind of weird. And that it's the... the uh, you know, I described it earlier as the third act complication. It's the necessary obstacle to the perfect relationship. Yeah. Which every movie has to have. The or kiss every at one the of, train station at yeah, the Yeah. Every one of these movies has to have the moment where things don't work. Mm-hmm. So they can redeem them later. So they can earn their triumph, which they've already been fighting for, for which one of them has been fighting for for years. Um, and Hewitt sells it. I mean, like, she sells the anger. And yeah, she sells it's true. the agency. That is the best part of the movie. Yeah. And it's weird, right? Because all <laughs> of a sudden, it's like, oh, yeah, you have feelings and opinions. I didn't I, I didn't think you would. Yeah, I thought you were just giant hair and, yeah. like, a halter top. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean... So, you know, if you wanted to, if you watch the movie from that perspective and mm-hmm. wanting to identify with her or already identifying with her, what's your takeaway? Like, how do you, how do you relate to that character? I mean, I don't think that I did. I think when I watched this movie, I think I, like, 
you know, I think I had a crush on the Preston character because I probably wanted to be the Preston character, you know? I think there's that kind of common trope with, like, women when they consume things like this where it's like, you know, you you have a crush on the guy in the band, but then it's like, no, you actually want to be the guy in the band or, you know, it's not enough to, like, sleep with Will Ferrell. You actually want to be Will Ferrell. And I think women a lot of times, like, get confused as, like, the people that they idolize, these these guys in pop culture or whatever, or their their crushes, it's like all the things that you want from that person, the reason that you're putting that person on a pedestal is because they're all qualities that either you have in yourself or you want to have. And it was always so frustrating for me because I feel like those, those the Prestons in high school or whatever, they didn't want, like, their equivalent. They want, like, objects like Jennifer Love Hewitt's. Right. Um, and then you also realize that when you talk to those guys, they're a lot of times they're really hostile and weird and arrogant, and they don't want to be on a level playing field with you anyway. So, in a lot of ways, it's like you should just be dating like the Jason Siegel, like licking up the watermelon on the floor guy, because yeah. maybe he's going to treat you better than some guy who's going to be like intimidated by the fact that you know all the same cool books as them and live in their, their they inhabit their headspace or something. Yeah. Well, that was another big trope in the 90s too, right? With She's All That and things oh, like yeah. teaching people how to be better. Exactly. For you. Yeah. Yeah. Or or now this weird Manic Pixie Dream Girl thing where it's like, oh, you like the Smiths too? Yeah. They're all, like a band that only I know about. And, you know, as if, I mean, that's kind of a thing in high school. You, you imagine this perfect person who's going to like all the same bands as you and all the same books as you and you know, it's like enough that you're kind of governed by references alone. Yeah. And then you realize, oh, no, that's not enough to sustain a relationship on at all. But no. it seems like it is at the time. Well, it's a template, right? Like, it's where you build. But yeah, one of the things that Kate and I first bonded over was Beatles stuff, which, you know, you think is the most basic and iconic. That She grew up in the north of England, and yeah. I think she was kind of impressed that a Canadian kid would have the same insane love of it. But that's something you start a conversation with. It's not... It's not where you fall. It's not where you finish. Yeah. I mean, I just, I watched, uh, I think I watched some episodes of Gilmore Girls, which was another, like, early mid-90s thing. And that's, you know, she starts a relationship with this guy because he knows all the same books as her. And it's like, that's, yeah, I think when you're really young, that's, like, what you have. All you have are your cultural references, you know? Sure. Well, in high school, you know, the badges on your jacket are your signifiers. It's your armor. Yeah. And I think what what's really important, yeah, what this film's about identity and how people see themselves. And, you know, the reason everyone's kind of this flash-in-a-pan stereotype and you're just flitting through all these different subcultures and groups and you're going, okay, there's, like, the jocks and there's the huge stoners and there's the girl who needs everyone to sign her yearbook because, like, memories are all we have. And it's just an interesting question, like, because now I think about high school, I don't I, I'm going to sound like maybe kind of a, a bitch now, but, like, I don't remember most of the people that I went to high school with. Like, when I was in high school, it was this huge formative thing. And now, 10 years away from it, like, it doesn't it doesn't really read in my life, you know? I, I remember, like, the frustration of who I wanted to be and the person that my expectations were so high for what I thought high school was going to be. And then, you know, it was disappointing. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I managed to, like, all the coming-of-age experiences I thought I was going to have in high school, I had, like three years later and again like five years later so it's like it does catch up with you um even if you're like a late bloomer and there's something about all that kind of like wanting and how vulnerable you are and like what you think the world's going to be like you're so open and that's almost something that you should really treasure because now i'm 
dead inside. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, we're we're all dead inside. Uh, anybody in the arts fields, that's how it has to be. That's that's your armor. But no, it's you're absolutely right. And that, and again, to go back to my my academic friend's point, um, you are not necessarily done when you're finished high school. Like it's an arbitrary release point. Yeah, people think it's supposed to be this entire like formative gestation period for you and then like you come out fully formed into like the person you want to be and who you are but actually i think college college is way more important i would say i mean college is where you go to be exposed to things like the the idea of the set curriculum in high school you know you only get to see the same things everybody else sees although now i'm sure with the net there are other ways to find stuff and Mm -hmm. just go out and be who you want to be earlier Yeah, yeah. I certainly, like, I wasn't done when I was 18. No. And I think that's the frustrating thing about high school. I mean, depending on where you go, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people meet, like, their absolute best friends and the love of their life, and they have all these incredible experiences. And that's not to, like, you know, undervalue my friends in high school, you know, who were awesome. I just, like, I didn't meet my people. And I think meeting your people is everything. I met them later in university. Um, and again, later, you know, when I went to the Canadian Film Center and stuff, but it's like... Well, that's how you build your tribe, right? Like, yeah. you have to figure out what you want before you can know what you want to share. Yeah. And that's how it goes. And it felt like, with a lot of these 90s teen movies, it's all about, like, kind of the subculture and these cliques. Mm-hmm. But it's it's not... I think in the 80s, it was more about the individual Especially in the 70s, is about the individual. Oh, absolutely, in the 70s, yeah. And the 80s is sort of that weird midpoint where it started to get taken over by major corporate interest studios, buying, mm. like, buying studios and reorienting. Can he have him wear Nikes? Can we do that? Can yeah. we get some Reeboks on this guy? I'm trying to think of, like, like I guess American Graffiti is, like, the defining teen movie of the 70s. Yeah, well, Last Picture Show. Oh, yeah. Is, but it's too nostalgic. Like, they both, they're mm. both nostalgic, but I think yeah, I was they're, say... Yeah, it's weird because they're replicating an earlier time. Yeah, they're the ones that sort of lock down the idea of a nostalgia picture. Yeah. With period soundtracks and specific details. Those and were for me, movies. like, nostalgia is kind of like the defining thing of high school, right? Because it's like you're nostalgic at the same time as you're experiencing things. Like, yeah. you fall in love and you know that, like, the way that you fall in love is never going to be the way you're going to fall in love again. So even when you're feeling things, you know that this is as deeply as you're going to feel them. Yeah. Which well, is, there's the self-awareness now because everything has to be... Uh, recorded, documented yeah recorded and preserved yeah and the movies teach us that because so many movies begin with that was the summer where everything changed and like you have to it's true you're yeah. braced to every every new experience is going to be the formative thing like the, cru- the crux of your life the crucial formative moment and it's weird because I love coming of age movies so much and uh, that idea of coming of age is so cool and important to me and in this movie, I don't really feel like anybody does come of age. No, yeah. Because it's mean, also surface level, you yeah. know? You don't really hang out with anyone long enough to really understand how they're processing things or what it means to them. I mean, I think... I think actually, like, the Mike Dexter's character is, like, really interesting because it's, like... It is, like, a pretty, like, um, cynical statement in a way. Like, this guy's going to be the same. And yeah. He's not going to change. And this is... His yeah. life's going to suck. He's met his future self. And it's terrifying, but he doesn't know how not to be that, so he retreats yeah. into it at the end. Yeah. The thing that I, the, my one great takeaway from this is that all four members of Dujour are in this movie, so I just assume <laughs> that that's where they came from. The next, the next day over pancakes, they figured it out and became Dujour. Oh, Dujour. Yeah. For, oh, for, right. Put, for oh, the, that's the where. Yeah, all that's four so actors. All four cast members. 
It's also sort of cool that this movie is made by, like, a man and a woman, like, screenwriting team. Mm-hmm. Screenwriting directing team. Yeah, whose work is never quite as good if they don't direct it, which is really fascinating. Yeah, They They, they co-wrote uh, the Flintstones Ma- sequel, which no one speaks of. That's horrible. Uh, Maid of Honor. Maid that- of Honor, that horrible Patrick Dempsey yeah, movie. Yeah, that movie's where, really shitty. Oh, it's terrible. Uh, Leap Year, the one with Amy Adams and Matthew Good. Oh, that movie's awful, too. Yeah, and I don't. And Surviving Christmas, which is underrated, the Ben Affleck, Christine Applegate comedy that's actually really clever. But Oh, I've never but, heard of it. You no, know, it was beaten to death by Gigli, like, the week before. And it, it was right at that time when Ben Affleck was poisoned. But it's, uh, like, seek it out, folks. It's a surprisingly <laughs> good comedy with Ben Affleck, Christina Applegate, and James Gandolfini. Oh, I'm down. Gets, gets no credit Christmas whatsoever. Scene? And it's a Christmas movie. Uh, it's about a billion, oh, like, a, not a billionaire. He's he's wealthy enough that he can afford to hire people to pretend to represent his family for Chris, and have the Christmas he never had. Uh, oh. It's it's funny. It's not perfect, and it was underserved by its director, who went for a more slapsticky vibe. But, but the ideas of it are as clever as what... The Kaplan and Elfant do here and in Josie it's just you kind of have to go in knowing they wrote it or else you'll just write it off apparently which yeah. is what happened to everyone else but me <laughs> um, but yeah so to wrap this, this right. standard wrapping yeah, question what have you taken away from this have you ever cribbed or stolen an idea from, from what they've done in this film to further your own work uh, good question I'm trying to think yeah. I wrote like a, a screenplay that was set in like a college uh, newspaper kind of environment that uh-huh. starts with like it's kind of bookended by two big parties so um and it's about like this and I, i'm just gonna pitch my movie over sure. the podcast it's about this like student reporter who she like investigates the world of professional pickup artists and tries to like use their techniques to lose her virginity okay so it's kind of like a kind of like a gross out comedy through like a female lens and she has this, like, big uh, crush on her editor um, who assigns her the story. And then she kind of goes out and then she um, hangs out with all these pickup bars. And it's based on an article that I wrote when I was 19 for my school newspaper where I hung out with a bunch of professional pickup bars. Uh, so I think what I like about this movie is that um, I like the reversals of all the characters. I like that... You people are presented one way, and then you actually see them kind of go through something, and they everyone sort of gets what they want or gets what they deserve, I guess, yeah. by the end of it. But it does feel like these are characters that are their identities in flux, and they're presenting themselves as something that they know that they're actually not, um, which I think is always interesting to me. Um, and uh. And I like seeing... I think it's just a really fun movie. I like seeing... I like the way that they weave through all these... I like on big ensemble comedies. And I think they're really hard to pull off well. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I think that this one, especially in this high school setting at this big house party, is really brilliant and economical. And the casting's really inspired. And it's like... It's like structurally really well made. Even though there's lots of parts of it that are kind of outdated and... Um, homophobic <laughs> and racist and weird it does feel like the movie's trying to do something and it's asking those big questions in a really popcorny way but it's actually way smarter than critics or just regular people might give it credit for yeah and I certainly agree with that i feel tender about it because it you know it was a movie i watched every day when i was 12 <laughs> yeah um and so you know, I think I'm. There's always a part of me that's always going to like it, 
even though, you know, it's not, it's not Say Anything, which is, like, a movie I also watched in that movie, like, you know, or, or Almost Famous, which, like, actually formed my identity as a human <laughs> being. But there's something about the movie that's very sweet and earnest, and I think it's, like, it's, it's, it asks big questions about the high school experience, and is it, is it really something that is going to dictate the course of your life, or what your expectations are going to be for, for life after high school, but for one night, if you can if you can live out your high school experience and get everything you want and, and be the person that you always thought that you could be, what would that be like? So in some ways, it's I'm just babbling on and on. No, it's good. It's a it's like a fantasy, I guess, uh, and it was a fantasy for me when I was twelve, of what you know a perfect night after you graduate could be, where like all of your expectations could be fulfilled, even if they weren't for like all four or five years. Right. And so you didn't have that experience the night you graduated. Did it ever pay off? Did you ever have a night like this? <laughs> uh, I mean, I lived in Montreal when I was 24, and that was a pretty awesome summer of just, like, uh, going to concerts and um, drinking a lot in the park. And I got in, like, a bunch of accidents just from being drunk all the time. <laughs> and I think, yeah, I always wanted to have this, like, group of friends, and you would do everything together and you know, we'd all kind of, like, come of age at the same time in this kind of sprawling group of friends where everyone hung out with each other and dated and went to parties together. And for, like, one summer, I had that experience. Because a lot of the times, I think, you're just waiting for these people that are going to understand you. And it's, it is really hard to find people that understand you. Yeah. Well, that's I think that's why I like Can't Hardly Wait, even though I don't identify with anyone necessarily. I think the movie yeah. gets me. Like, it feels like... Yeah. It feels like it knows me. That's a, And that's so important, right? I mean, I think as a filmmaker, yeah, just, like, wanting your audience to have fun and, like, enjoy what's happening and, like, it's so entertaining and, like, not being afraid to really go for, like, sincerity and, and the the character of Preston is so earnest and kind of overbearingly so, but the fact that he, like, really loves this girl and wants to be with her, like, I was really over I struck by that again, just how much sincerity he has and how much that he thinks this high school relationship is actually going to mean something and be this defining moment in his life. And I think that's what I love about Cameron Crowe movies too, is just how, how much the characters, this means, they mean the things that they do. Yeah. And I think for me in my work, it's, it's easy to kind of feel like a little bit cynical and kind of lose that level of sincerity or put a veil over things so that the audience can feel a little bit removed or, or cool with you being cool. But actually going for things and being sincere about your feelings, especially in screenwriting, this is the most important thing that like the things that, that your characters are doing have value for them. Yeah. And they're at a place in their life where like this means a lot to them. Yeah. Show me someone cares about something and I will care about that. Yeah. Or I'll care about them caring about it. And yeah, sometimes it reads as fake and this one, yeah, it earns it, I think. Yeah. Oh, there's something weird, like, when he goes... By the first time I saw him in that, like, kind of shrunken red coat, yeah. and he hops over the thing, I was like, whoa, I'm, like, my grade 7 self is, like, coming out of me as I'm, like, watching this, and, like, I remember just loving the way that he looks so much, and now I'm like, oh, that's a coat I would probably wear, and, like, I, you know, I, like, I'm, I kind of evolved to the point where I'm like, oh, I think I want to be that guy, not kiss, have him kiss me in a train station. All right. Well, that's good. You get to be your own hero. Yeah, and I think that's, like, with high school, the most important thing is, like, and I'm still trying to figure it now as, as a 28-year-old, is, like, being comfortable with who you are and knowing that you're going to go through life as yourself and that's, like, the best person that you can be. Yeah. You'll get there. I mean, middle age is until you're, like, 53 now. 
You'll be fine. Yeah. My thanks to Chandler Levac, who was kind enough to say yes immediately when I asked if we could re-release this episode more than seven years after the recording. Her wonderful first feature, I Like Movies, has two more screenings at TIFF. Tomorrow, Wednesday, September 14th at 6.30 p.m. at the TIFF Bell Lightbox 3, and Friday, September 16th at the TIFF Bell Lightbox 2 at 9.45 p.m. You should go if you can, and if you can't, there will be a theatrical release later this year. You can follow Chandler on Twitter at clevac, C-L-E-V-A-C-K, no spaces, and you can find Can't Hardly Wait on Blu-ray and DVD from Sony Pictures Home Entertainment and streaming on Hollywood Suite and ctv.ca in Canada and on the freebie Amazon channel in the U.S. It's also available to rent or buy on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of someone else's movie, 45 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll like it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you enjoyed it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you at the festival.